0: Hello, my name is Sheila and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, All About You. I love to listen to podcasts and especially conversations with famous people. However, I think everyone has a story to tell. Maybe a place you have visited, a hobby you enjoy or anything that you feel would be of interest. I want to have conversations with lots of different people and hear their stories. So if you have a story to tell please contact me on my email, allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com. Welcome to another conversation on the All About You podcast. This conversation is being recorded using Skype, so hopefully the quality is okay and technology will be kind to us. My guest today is Simon Tucker from the UK. He has always been interested in animals and was studying zoology when he first got hooked on bird watching, which remains his passion to this day. Simon has combined his love of travel and birds, and in his words, I've spent a fair amount of time birding around the UK, France, Spain, Germany, Cuba, Ecuador, Kenya, Indonesia, India, and Peru. Wow, that's quite some list, Simon. He has a great story to tell involving a redundancy check and a top-of-the-range pair of binoculars and a telescope, but more about that later in the conversation. After helping with bird surveys, Simon went on to train as a bird ringer and advanced to becoming a trainer himself as well as working with data collection. He has worked with the World Wildlife Trust and has many articles published about his work, as well as appearing in the UK TV programme Countryfile. So, Simon, welcome to the All About You podcast. I have to say, I know nothing about bird ringing, so I'm looking forward to being educated. So, welcome, Simon. Good morning. Well, it's lovely to have you on the podcast. So, Simon... When you were a child, did you have a plan to work with
1: animals? Uh, I was interested in animals from a, a very, very young age. Uh, my sort of early birthday presents were things like the, the Britain's Zoo and Farm animals, and um, had to be Britain's because they were the most uh, faithful reproductions, shall we say, of, of the real thing. And uh, it just grew from there really. So yes, um, as a child uh, living in Paulsgrove, uh, just outside Portsmouth, we collected frogs and newts and um, um, all sorts of creepy crawlies. It was uh, kept in the the end of the garage where we didn't have a car so we could keep our menagerie. Yes, it was good.
0: I'm sure your mum was really impressed going into the garage and finding all this this, uh, livestock there. (laughs)
1: Oh, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Simon, you went to university to study zoology. So what was your plan?
1: Um, It wasn't so much a plan as um, I'd spent, after school, I spent six years working on farms uh, rearing pigs, basically. That was my my role for six years as a pig stockman. And I enjoyed it, but very long hours, um, not an awful lot of money. I felt that I needed to do something different so I thought that I might try and get into research. So uh, I asked around as to what I should do and the first thing they said was get a degree and then get a higher degree. So I went to university to get a degree uh, and I was going to do it in applied zoology so I could go back into agriculture but then I decided no actually I don't want to go back into agriculture, I want to branch out and try something else. So. I went to uni to to do zoology. I went as a mature student. I had a wife and two children by then, which was another reason for stopping the farming because I just was spending so much time out, so little money. It was really quite hard. So I did the degree and it was great. And then realized that, of course, a degree in zoology gets you not a great deal of remuneration um, unless you happen to be David Attenborough or Chris Packham or somebody well known like that and get on the telly. Um, And although I've been on the telly a couple of times since, you know, I'm not really in that bracket. Everything I've done has been voluntary. So I actually went into IT and the benefit of going into IT was very simple. It paid extremely well. It provided a company car. And in those days, although it was taxable, you also got pretty much free fuel. So all I needed for my hobby was a pair of binoculars and a telescope and time. Because the company paid for the rest inadvertently, but they did. It was fantastic.
0: So, how did you then get into your love of birds? Where where did that come
1: in? Uh, well, that was actually when I was um, working on the farms. It started. Um, we were working. I was working at a farm in a place called Redgrave, which is uh, on the Norfolk-Suffolk border. We had lots of birds around there, so green woodpeckers were always around the place and they 're such beautiful birds um, But one day we um on the local newspaper, it said, "Has anybody seen this bird and It was a picture of a very large white bird, which happened to be a Siberian white crane. It was a fantastic bird they're very rare uh, it was almost certainly an escape from a collection, but it was still such a mega bird to see. And we knew exactly where it was. It was in the field at the bottom of our garden. And the reason it was there was because the farm manager had illegally spread a lot of slurry on that field. And of course, pig slurry and it was full of worms and the bird had come in for the worms. And so we were all on pain of death for our jobs if we dared to actually mention it to anybody. Um, but that was exciting. And then when I got to uh, that was my last job before going to university. And then I went to Reading University and the campus at Reading is fantastic. The White Knights campus was full of wildlife. And uh, I just went from there, really. And then with the course, going off on various field trips, getting to see peregrine falcons, great skewers and birds like that. It was just like the blue touch paper that just got me going.
0: Wow. So you discovered your love of birds. So now... Bird ringing, what is it and why do you do it?
1: Okay, bird ringing, it's also it's called banding in the rest of the world, but, you know, we're British, so we like to be different. Um, it was actually invented by a couple of Scandinavians who wanted to know what was going on with the birds in their locality. So they dreamed up this idea of putting um, small metal rings with unique numbers on to the birds, And people at Aberdeen University and the Natural History Museum in Tring, as it was in those days, or their outpost in Tring, started their own little schemes following that lead. But what they then decided was it would be sensible if it was a national scheme and a centrally recorded database of of things. So that is now run by the British Trust for Ornithology, who happened to be based in Thetford in Norfolk. And it is a nationwide scheme. And now the organisational thing has spread across the world. Virtually every country in the world now has its own bird ringing scheme, the monitoring of movements and things like that. So the point of ringing is a very simple one. If you go into a wood and you say you see six blue tits, a common species in the UK, so we see six blue tits, how do you know if you've not seen them all at the same time? How do you know whether you've seen six individual blue tits, or one blue tit six times. See, you don't actually know. But if you put a ring on it with a unique number and you catch it again and again, then you know that that one bird you've seen, let's say, three times. So there are at least four birds in the, in the wood. And that's the way that that part of it works. So it's a way of uniquely identifying a bird. That's the first thing
0: is how on earth do you catch birds to actually put the identification ring on the bird?
1: Well, there are all sorts of methods, but the main method is a thing called mist netting. These are extremely fine mesh nets, and you set them along um, paths or rides or cuttings through the wood or along hedges. Unfortunately, it's the method that's also used by poachers Um, So sometimes people look at you a bit askance, thinking that perhaps you're doing something illegal. We're not. We've got to be licensed to do it. Whereas, of course, you know, on Cyprus and Malta and places uh, like that, then they actually they use those methods for poaching small songbirds for the restaurant trade. Um, God knows why, but there you go. We use mist nets um, they're usually sort of 6, 12, 18 metres long. And two and a half meters tall. And they've got pockets. So when the bird hits the net, it falls into a pocket in the net. And then we come along, extract it, and carry out the processing. What we do once we catch a bird is give it a well, identify the species. That's the key thing. Uh, put the ring on it. We'll age it if we can. We'll identify the sex if we can. Um, we'll look at its uh, body condition we'll look at its wing length and its weight um and record all that uh, we we'll look at things like molt strategy you know birds every year a bird will actually replace all of its feathers okay which is why birds never get look any older
0: if we change in every year, then we would never age.
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, there's a good story. It's um, there's a, a gentleman who, um, when he was not but a teenager, ringed a bird called a Manx shearwater. Now, these are um, seabirds, and they sort of they nest in um, on the islands on the west coast of the UK and Ireland, um, and they spend their winters down off the coast of Argentina. They always come back to this part of the of the the world to nest, and um, he had a photograph taken of him rigging his first Manx shearwater. Well, that bird has been going for fifty years now, and when they caught it again on its fiftieth year, they took another photograph of the same bird, which looks identical to the way it was fifty years ago, and of course him, who looks considerably different. Hmm. Yeah, I so suppose the. The point of ringing is that it enables you to look at population dynamics. Um, The standard method for identifying population levels in um, biological groups is to catch a number of that group, uniquely identify them, release them, and then later on go back and do another catch. So let's say you go into a site and you catch 10 birds of one species and you ring them. You let them go. You come back a month later, and you catch another ten birds, but only one of them's got a ring on it. It gives you an indication that that one bird is ten percent of the, um, the, the those ten would perhaps ten percent of the population. So it gives you an idea that there's probably a hundred birds of that species in the locale. Yeah, but it's the it's the it's about the only way that you can actually do those sorts of population studies. Um, so that's one of the things that it does another thing that it does is it enables you to map the movements of birds what we would call a recovery or retrap um, which showed a migration route was the swallow back in the 18th 19th century when they didn't know any better they couldn't understand where all the birds went all the summer birds went in the winter so swallows they used to think would actually fly down into the into the bottom of ponds and actually hibernate in the ponds and then appear again in the summer when it warmed up but by bird ringing they could actually actually found out that our swallows which summer here will fly as far as South Africa because one was recovered with a UK ring in South Africa and now there've been lots more recoveries down there so we know that swallows now in the winter migrate from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere into um yeah, South Africa and the southern parts of Africa um, and we've now been able to trace so many other birds through that. Then there are other things you know that it does as say it enables to monitor body condition um, and um, things like uh, sexual balance in the population and all those things. So every day that I go out ringing I take in a lot of data and then I enter it all up onto a, a, an online database um, which goes into the the national data set um, and every now and again I'll get a report back from the BTO that somebody else has caught one of my birds and they know it's one of my birds because of the ring on it because it's unique and that ring is something that is registered to me.
0: Different groups of people all around the UK in theory doing the same thing and then that information is collated?
1: Exactly that I mean there are I think about three and a half thousand active ringers in the uk at the moment something like that um, my permit number is 5940 um, but then permits have only permit numbers have only been out there for about well they've been out there for about 50 years but i think the uptake is higher now than it used to be the ringer scheme has been going for well over 100 years now something like 110 years um, so it, it is extremely well established and, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been doing it now for 13 years. I wish I'd found it earlier, you know, to be honest, because it's such an interesting thing to do.
0: Well, so, so you became a bird ringer and then you then progressed to being a trainer of other yeah. bird ringers as well. I mean, what's the typical person coming into this? Is it sort of people that are retired because I should imagine there's a lot of time involved or do you have young people who, who do it at the weekends?
1: Yeah, what um, it's, it's quite a, quite amusing because yes, the the, the the usual thing you know like train spotters and stamp collectors and all that sort of thing. The usual idea is that it's it's old white men. Um, but I'm extremely lucky. I just just go through it. There are a number of stages to get to be um, a fully qualified bringer. The first stage is just you come along as a helper to just to see if you are interested because it's not for everybody. Um, I'm going to be out ringing tomorrow morning. I should be out of the house at 5:30 tomorrow morning, and that's going to get earlier. You know, by the by the middle of the summer, I'll be leaving the house by by four o'clock in the morning. Not everybody can hack that. Once you've decided that yes, you want to move on from there, then you become a, a T-permit holder, which is essentially a trainee. and that means that you you're allowed to work, but only with somebody who's got full permit and has an endorsement that allows them to take on trainees. The next step up is a C permit holder, and they, they are allowed to work independently of their trainer, but their trainer is still responsible for them, which is a little unfair, really, because if your trainee goes out and makes some muck, is that your fault? Well, I suppose the thing is you've decided they were independent enough to do that, so it is. Um, but I have known of people who've been suspended because of errors that their trainees have made, and that doesn't seem fair, but it's life. And then you get to be an A-ringer, it means that you are totally independent. And that journey for me, so I went from helping, I went straight to a T anyway. Um, but as a trainee, I was a trainee for three years. Um, I was a C permit holder for two years, um, and I've been a fully qualified A-ringer for the last five, six years. So yeah, it's it, that's the sort of that's a sort of good progression. That there were some hold-ups on the way, which might have got me to being a C permit holder earlier, but yeah, it's all worked out. Um, my permit is now designated as S because I've, I took on the training responsibility. So basically, I had to be assessed by independently assessed for my abilities as a ringer and my capabilities as a trainer. So I'm now I've now got that, um, and as is the way of things, because I've got. um young people in my team I've also been DBS checked through criminal records people so you know I've got um, I've got a nice certificate that says I'm trustworthy so my team is completely bucks the trend of the old retired white guy I am the old retired white guy in our team and I have one other old retired white guy but apart from that my team is primarily female um so I've got Johnny and and David who are David's just qualified as a, uh, with a degree in zoology from Everest. With Johnny is um, qualified a few, couple of years ago, but he's mid 20s. I've got um, one, two, three, four, five, six female trainees, three of whom I'm not leaving anybody out of Yeah, three of whom are C permit holders and three of whom are T permit holders. So I have a very different trend. And my youngest trainee is 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 ten years old, and she's lovely. She's been working with me since she was seven with her mum as well because her mum's one of my trainees.
0: I mean for me, a couple of questions for you I mean obviously it's it's a big commitment regarding time, yeah, not just time out doing the the, uh, the ringing, but obviously getting up at the ungodly hour in the morning, and I guess as you say, during the summer spring that that's probably more hours than in the winter but i'm also surprised at how many women you've got in 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 this um the bird winging i i personally wouldn't have thought this would appeal to women so educate me please simon
1: i think the thing is particularly in the uk a lot more women are going into conservation work um i hate to say it conservation probably because it's not particularly well paid you know? I mean, there are some good well-paid jobs in conservation, to go, don't get me wrong. One of my trainees is um, the Northern Reserves Manager for the Wiltshire Wildlife Trust, with whom I do a lot of work, you know, um, and she's not excessively well-paid, but it's 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 average salary, whereas most conservation salaries are not. Um, if I, I mean, my team, so Ellie runs um, reserves for the Wiltshire Wildlife Trust. Alice is doing a PhD on seabird monitoring at Oxford, Lucy's doing a, a degree in environmental land management at Reading. Annie is um, a senior ecologist at uh, an ecological surveying company, and Steph is a, a, just a lovely person who does um, childminding. <laughs> so you know that's basically where that side of my team comes from. It's nice because virtually everybody has got some background in science. Um, Johnny Cooper, for example, who has been perhaps my, well my longest serving, by, he's at currently being assessed for his A permit. He's running what's called the Lowland Curlew Project uh, for Wiltshire, and uh, basically we're monitoring the um, presence or absence and success of curlew on our lands around where I live. In fact, so um, yeah, everybody is involved in some way, and it's great. It's um, it, it's a very science-organised or, oriented. i like it
0: so simon can you tell us the story of the binoculars the (laughs) telescope, and the redundancy check please i'm intrigued
1: well i went into it soon after leaving uni and it was one of those things that um the company i was working for went bust basically it wasn't a nice times first time I'd ever been made redundant you know I lost a job so you know that wasn't particularly pleasant um I got my redundancy check but I was um I was out of work for two days because people had heard that I was actually quite good at what I did um so I had this check for my redundancy and um I was still getting a salary so I thought what can I do you know I had a drotty pair of binoculars which weren't very good and the redundancy check was more than enough to pay for Top of the range pair of um, Zeiss West Germany, goes how far back it was, over 30 odd years ago, um, binoculars, which were the top of the range at the time, um, and a Cower telescope, which again, you know, was the ones that everybody spoke about in those days. I've had them with me pretty much ever since, which shows the value of buying something that's worthwhile in the first place. But there is a sad story about my binoculars, well, a couple of stories. The first one is, that um, I was driving home from work one day, and I always had my bins and telescope in, the, uh, in the, the, the boot of the car, and some idiot drove straight into the back of me on the M4, which was not fun. so My car got shunted across three lines of traffic. It was a Range Rover hitting the back of my Ford Granada. didn't do it any good, but my binoculars and telescope bounced across the M4 and were perfectly fine afterwards the value of of, of buying good quality stuff, but then sadly, two years ago, scope's still fine, but sadly two years ago, I was out at a site, I was um, setting up a couple of feeding stations. In the winter I do supplementary feeding, so that, um, two reasons for that, one is it helps the birds survive, uh, and the other is it means I don't have to set hundreds of nets, I can just set a couple of nets near the feeding station and it concentrates the catch, makes life easier. I'd gone to set up this new site, and for whatever reason, because I never do this, but I put my binoculars on the top of my car whilst I was doing something in the back of it. I uh, forgot to take them off when I drove off, and uh, when I realised what I'd done, I went back, but they'd gone already. Somebody obviously had them, so that was very silly. (laughs) Um, So I had to buy myself another pair of binoculars, which, (laughs) astonishingly, were half the price of the old ones and considerably better because the technology has moved on so much in the last 30 years.
0: Can, can I ask you now about um, a lot of people may have bird tables or feeders in their gardens. We, we're coming into spring now but what should yeah. what people be, be doing? Should they be putting particular food? Is there anything they shouldn't be putting in those feeders?
1: I don't think there's anything you shouldn't put in the feeders, provided it's it's about the feeders themselves, a lot of it. But if you want to get birds in your garden, there are three things that you need. Peanuts in a proper feeder, not those horrible plastic um, netting things which the birds can get their feet caught in, um, but a proper wire-framed feeder for peanuts. Fat balls, again, in a proper fat ball, this sort of holder, or, or... suet nibbles or something like that. Peanuts will attract in woodpeckers, nuthatches and blue and grape tits and, and, and lots of birds like that. Fat balls again that will attract in those birds but also um, starlings and um, yeah birds like that uh, and then you can put up a seed feeder but if you want to get lots of birds in your garden fill it with sunflower hearts. I mean, you'll see lots of things like people say, oh, niger seeds for goldfinches and this and that and the other. No, if you want birds in your garden, sunflower hearts is the answer. That's what they'll go for. But the thing with, I mean, I feed all year round, but the thing to be aware of is particularly at this time of year, keep the feed levels at a level where they will be emptied on a regular basis. You don't want food sat out there for weeks on end. So, you know, just put in enough food to last for a couple of days and make sure that you keep your feeders clean Um, and if you do see any birds which are looking ill or unwell then empty your feeders clean them and don't hang them up for a couple of days until those birds perhaps have died off or moved away that's what I do so
0: Simon if somebody wants to get involved with data collection bird ringing or anything to do with sort of the bird community who should they get in touch with
1: The organisation in the UK, and there are similar organisations around Europe and well around the rest of the world, is the British Trust for Ornithology. If you go to their website, which is www.bto.org, you'll find there are so many different survey options up there. Obviously, Becoming a Ringer is one of them, um, and they have a, a page called Find a Trainer. And so you can actually go on and for who is available as a trainer in your part of the world. But there are also there are lots of other surveys they do. There's the breeding bird survey, which is a, a walking survey. It's not, you don't catch birds, but you, you go to a site and you monitor um, over a, sort of two sessions at the beginning and end of the breeding season what is actually on site there. And they get an idea then of what's arrived to breed there and what's actually stayed to breed there. That's another one. And there are all sorts of all sorts of surveys on there that you can get involved with. Uh, and I'm, I think that's the same in most countries around the world now. So that it's finding the right organisation. I say in the UK, it's the BTO.
0: the state of the British bird community? Is it looking good? Is it more environmental issues?
1: Yes. I mean, th- there are all sorts of things going on which are, are issues. We've got change because of climate change. We've got some species which are arriving and some species which are thriving. But things like many of our seabird communities are not thriving.
0: Is the environment having an impact?
1: Yes, it is. I mean, there's been quite a lot of climate change, as we all know. Um, And one of the things that's impacted on our seabird colonies, uh, because the waters around sort of the north of England, Scotland, are warming up, it's actually driving away fish stocks. And that's had an impact on puffins and kittiwakes and birds like that. having to travel much further to actually find food. Numbers of those birds have actually declined quite significantly. It doesn't help that we're still hoovering things like sand eels out of the um, out of the the waters to provide food for pigs and things like that. You know, it's it's uh, something that's, that's uh, actually a global problem. Besides that, we've also got um, a continuing decline in farmland farmland birds. That's primarily due to modern farming methods, too much pesticide too few hedgerows not enough weedy seedy edges and people are trying to address that i don't want to vilify all our farmers because it's not the point i work with a lot of really good farmers who are doing all they can to encourage birds in there on their sites and yeah the places that i work with those farmers they have got great variety and good numbers of birds because they're farming properly but there are still these huge great monocultural deserts out there which are not good for anything. Not birds, not mammals, not anything. So yeah, it's a problem. The government have said they're going to address it by the way that they um, subsidise farming in future, Uh, something which the EU's always done and something which this government is promising to do much more of now that we're out of the EU. It is an issue, Um, We have an issue of fragmentation of woodland. There are certain species of bird which are quite sedentary. And the thing is, if you cut the woodlands up into small chunks, they've got fewer and fewer areas to breed and they don't naturally move to other woodlands. So it's uh, that's an issue. We also have a terrific problem in this country. One is the release of millions and millions upon millions of pheasants and partridge for shooting each year. Which completely upset the balance of nature. Once upon a time, only twenty years ago, it was a fraction of the number of those game birds being released. But everybody is so greedy now, everybody needs to wants to have so much money out of shooting that they're producing far too many of these birds. And they just they have several problems. One is just occupying space. The other is that only about a third of what's shot is actually eaten. A third of it is left to rot in the fields, which means that we've got increased populations of generalist predators like foxes um, and crows, which is not their fault. It's the fault of the the process. And of course, 30 percent of them are there breeding in the countryside and again, further causing imbalance with our native species. Because, you know, like a lot of the pheasants and partridge that are actually released in the UK are brought in from France as, as young birds reared in cages and then let out so it's not like they're even being bred here that's one and then that leads on to other problems where those people running the shoots are so intolerant of any birds of prey things that might predate their chicks that they kill them illegally all of our birds of prey are protected but you know we have for example a bird called the hen harrier which is um favors moorland to nest on so up in scotland and the highlands of England and Wales would be the places you'd find them. But in England, for example, there are perhaps a dozen breeding pairs of Heron Harriers in the north, because every time, every year, no matter what they say, they are illegally killed, they are shot, they're poisoned, they're trapped by gamekeepers and shoot owners who don't want those birds there in case they might predate one or two grouse chicks. Because um they're just so intolerant of what's there. And we have this problem across the country with the poisoning and killing of um, birds of prey, be it peregrine falcons, goshawks, sparrowhawks, kestrels. I mean, who shoots kestrels? They eat voles and the odd bird. Yeah. But people have been shooting kestrels this year. And certainly during lockdown for the pandemic, it's been a lot worse. So things in the UK are not rosy. For our bird life, or for any of our wildlife, to be honest. And there is a big movement against the shooting industry because of that. And it'll be interesting to see how things pan out over the next few years. I'll tell you how bad it is. Natural England, who are supposed to manage the UK's um, environment for the benefit of our wildlife and balance with the economic necessities of life, want to run a reintroduction campaign for. Um, hen harriers in the south of England and both France and Spain's appropriate organisations have refused to allow them to have hen harrier chicks for relocation from those countries to the UK because they don't trust that those birds will not be killed illegally. That's how badly thought of we are in terms of raptor persecution. When you look at what goes on in france and spain and other countries you know where there is persecution as well because nobody is perfect you know but it says something about the situation in the uk that, that they're not prepared to share whereas we have a thing called the great Bustard project which was to bring back this game bird which was um, extirpated in the 18th century i think in england and the spanish have been great in helping provide young birds for that project, which has now been hugely successful. I don't want to be all doom and gloom because I'm not, because I see a lot of good stuff going on. Um, but like all countries, we have a criminal element, and that criminal element is driven by greed. I hate to end on a downer. <laughs>
0: but, Simon, is there any, I mean, it's been a real education for me about the bird community and ringing and the training, etc. Is there anything I should have asked you
1: that i haven't yeah how much does it cost (laughs) see again this is typically british in a lot of the countries around the world i don't know what the situation is where you are but um a lot of countries around the world the bird banding is much more regulated in the uk if you've got a license and you've got a landowner who will let you go there and set your nets you can go off and ring as and when you like but we also pay for everything ourselves. So all the rings, all the nets all the poles not only are we're paying for that, we're also paying to maintain the bureaucratic infrastructure behind it, the BTO basically. They get grants from the government but it doesn't cover anything like as much as they need to run their organization. So we pay for like you know I mean I put a, a ring on a bird which costs a fraction of a penny to make but costs me 25 pence to buy. And if I ring, as I do, around about 4,000 birds a year, that's quite a financial commitment. And um, since we chose to come out of the EU, the cost of buying nets that are made in the EU, which happen to be the best nets for us to use, um, have gone up by over £20 per net. You know, so it's, uh, it's now 100, over £100 for a, uh, an 18-metre net. So none of it is cheap. Whereas in other countries, let say, if they go to Australia, for example, they're much more restricted about where and when they can work. They have to be licensed. Each site is licensed by the government, but they actually get everything paid for. It's just their time they have to give up. It's the way we do things in the UK. It always has been, probably always will be. But, um, yeah, we have a lot more flexibility, but we pay for it.
0: Well, I, I just hope things improve with the, the way birds are cared for, the, the rules and regulations and let let's hope there is a bit of a brighter future now for the bird community and and good luck with all your trainees
1: thank so, you very much indeed it's been very enjoyable
0: <laughs> you're welcome thanks simon Bye. No bye i hope you have enjoyed the conversation don't forget if you have a story you would like to tell please get in touch my email address is allaboutyoupodcast at yahoo.com and thank you for listening.